Well, good morning again. I don't know if you caught this in the news lately, um, but one of the former editors, the executive editor of the New York Times, has gotten in a little bit of trouble. They're facing some pretty strong accusations against her, um, and it looks pretty bad. It looks like she either plagiarized or maybe just did a really, really terrible job of giving credit to people who actually wrote the words that she was using in her most recent book. But here's the, the kicker of the situation. Guess what she was writing about? Yeah, ethics and journalism. <laughs> a little awkward, I know. Now, how trustworthy do you think people are going to feel towards the message of that book? Now, not so much, right? <laughs> And probably for all the people at the New York Times, they now have to deal with a little bit of baggage from that. The one who used to edit others' works to make sure that it passed all the standards of journalism is caught breaking the first rule of journalism. It's actually the first rule of preschool. Don't steal from others. An accusation against the source of news can really cause doubt on the trustworthiness of the news itself. In 1 Thessalonians 2, this is exactly what Paul faced. Accusations against him as the bearer of the news itself. The bearer of the news of Jesus. And as Christians, we face this every day. There are accusations, whether real or unfounded, that take shots at the trustworthiness of the good news of Jesus. We will face these challenges. We are facing these challenges to our faith at this time. So our question this morning is, when your hope in Jesus is challenged, will you trust? We're continuing in our study of 1 Thessalonians this morning. And as we've already established, this is a letter written by Paul the Apostle who was forced to leave this little fledgling church in Thessalonica. He came there, he preached the good news for three weeks. He preached the news in power. The Holy Spirit moved in the lives of many people, changing lives. To the point that last week we saw, as Joel preached, we saw that the news of changed lives had spread across all of Greece. Everyone knew and heard that something amazing had happened and that the church was remaining steadfast in hope despite the fact that they received a lot of persecution. Paul himself was forced to leave in the middle of the night. They are a beacon of the Gospel for all the other churches in the area. And Paul has just now learned this because Timothy, his apprentice, has returned with a report of all this good news. He's come back with a report of the way God has been moving in their hearts despite the fact that Paul was forced to leave them. But chapter 2 and 3, they involve a long defense here. And it seems maybe like it's a little bit um, out of context. Or it seems like it's a skip over chapter maybe. Unless we do the work of looking a little bit deeper to see what's behind this, what's behind what's going on. And when we do, it becomes clear that Timothy hasn't just brought back a good news report. He's also brought back reports that there's some accusations going on. There's some challenges against the people, this church's faith. He's brought back bad news of accusations that mean to undermine the people's hope. 
And this is our text this morning. It's 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 16. And you can find it in your pew Bibles on page 956, if you haven't found it already. We'll also have it up on the screen. Page 956 in the black pew Bibles. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 16. So bear with me, it's a little bit of a longer passage. This is the word of the Lord. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit, and the wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. And this is the bad news. This is the challenge to the hope. The very same people in the city who caused the riot and imprisoned members of the churches, the same jealous members of the synagogue who Paul points out in verses 14 through 16, are continuing to try and challenge this new church to give up on the good news that they received. And they're challenging the trustworthiness of the good news. Now, how do we know whether or not to trust the news? That's a big question right now, right? How do we know whether or not to trust the news? Because there's two components to this. There's the message itself. You know, is the message sound? Is it logical? Does it make sense? But we also ask, what about the source? Is the messenger one we can trust? And the opponents of the, the church in our text raise an attack on the trustworthiness of the news itself by raising accusations against the source. They're attacking Paul's trustworthiness. And these are accusations that threaten to challenge the very credibility of the faith that the church is holding on to. 
And Paul wants to make sure of one thing. When your hope is challenged, remember, know that Jesus is trustworthy and He's at work in you. And that's my prayer this morning, that you would know that. So this morning we're going to look at at the accusations that were leveled against Paul. We're going to look at them a little deeper. I think we're going to see that the very same accusations that are raised against Paul are ones that we still hear today. And we will see in Paul's defense an example of how the church can respond. How we're called to respond. And even more so, I think we're going to see how our hope in Jesus is one that you can build your life upon. That's what our series is getting after. No matter the challenge. No matter the challenge. And in our text, there are at least three explicit accusations that I want us to look at. The three explicit accusations. And so we're going to be living a little bit in verse 3. So keep your Bibles open there to verse 3. The first accusation was that Paul's message was based upon an error. And what they're saying is, is that the message isn't trustworthy because you don't know what you're talking about. Verse 3. For the appeal we make does not spring from error. This is Paul's response. So what is the accusation underlying that? That their message sprang from some sort of error. Now we don't know exactly what the opponents to Paul were saying that he said in error. But simply we know that the very same people who caused the riot were now feeding this little congregation this lie. Did God really say that? Paul is just a hack theologian. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know what the Scriptures really say. Now first off, we know who Paul was, right? He was at one time a leading Pharisee, a leading teacher of the Old Testament law. He was the scholar of his day. And we know that from Acts 17, which follows along sort of the story of what happened with the church of Thessalonica, we know that Paul came into the synagogue and for three straight weeks, it says that he taught. He taught from the Scriptures for three Sabbaths. And he almost certainly opened the Old Testament. That was their Scriptures. And he pointed out how they clearly and directly point to Jesus. So here's a scholar and he's opening their Word. Their Scriptures. And he points to the fact that Jesus was the perfect and wise fulfillment of the entire story of the Old Testament. And the accusation against Paul was this, that you just made that up. They're saying that that's not really what happened. God didn't really say that. Now does that sound at all familiar to a similar accusation from the very beginning of Scripture, right? This is the oldest attack on a faith that people of God have faced. This was the question that Adam and Eve faced in the garden from the serpent. The serpent asked, did God really say? And what's lying underneath that? What's lying underneath that? Did God really say that? It's an attack on the relationship itself. You don't know because you you haven't really met God. You haven't really experienced God. You can't really speak. You don't have no knowledge. You haven't seen Him act in your life. It's an attack on the relationship and therefore it draws the people into doubt of the message that that person brings. It's a powerful accusation. How does Paul respond? He says, on the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the Gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. 
Paul responds and says, my message is not an error. I haven't made this up. I am simply a steward. I'm passing on what I received. I'm a caretaker of what God has said. And what's more, nothing I do is intended to please people. You, of all people, should know this. Paul gave up the life of power as a Pharisee. He gave up that life of power and entered into a life of receiving abuse, of persecution. This is what he says in verse 2. You know where we just came from. Paul had just come from the city of Philippi. And when he was there, he was beaten. He was mocked. He was shackled and he was imprisoned. He came from that shame and walked into the city of Thessalonica. And the charge against him that he's just making this up, he's saying, you know what we faced. If we were making this up, why would we put ourselves through it again? Why would we put ourselves through it again? He says, but we came bravely, daring, because we are compelled. We've so met the living God that we feel compelled. We can do no other. We are so convinced. And Paul, for us here, he illustrates for us how those who proclaim Jesus don't have to make up anything. It's clear in God's Word the truth of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. And the way to respond to this accusation of speaking in error is to Remember, we simply are stewards. We simply open the Word of God. That is our source. So what about today? How often do we hear this accusation on a faith that professes Jesus? Does the Bible really say that? Is that really what it means? Now at each point that we we talk about, each accusation, I want to be clear. There are many who claim to follow Jesus who do not demonstrate the stewardship of God's Word that Paul does. And there are many who take God's Word out of context. We're not going to beat around the bush this morning. There's some very real places where the church has failed. Paul is saying God's word speaks for itself. I am simply a steward. So don't believe this lie. The hope you have in Jesus is real. But this isn't the only accusation that Paul faces. We see the next one immediately after in verse 3. Paul is accused of having impure motives. And what the opponents are saying is that You are just a slimy peddler. Verse 3. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives. And what they're saying, what they're accusing Paul of is having uh, impure motives. And the connotation here is that it's somehow, there's an immoral, devious, maybe even sexually immoral connotation. It's like someone saying of a preacher, he is slimy. He's just slimy. He's trying to take advantage of you. And the Thessalonians' hope in the good news of Jesus was being challenged by this accusation against the person who brought the good news and that they were not trustworthy. The preacher's just a slimy peddler. But how does Paul respond? Verse 5. You know we never use flattery. Nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We're not looking for praise from people nor from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Six times in this chapter, Paul says, you are witnesses. You know 
You know. You know you were there. Don't forget it. You know we were right there with you. We weren't after your flattery. We weren't after your praise. And in fact, Paul paints this beautiful, familial picture in verse 7. And it can be kind of confusing, right? You look at that, you're like, is he using two mixed metaphors here? Is he saying, I'm a baby, or I'm a mother caring for a baby, right? It was a little confusing. And behind it, behind it, what Paul is really painting is a beautiful picture to remind them. He says, we were like babies. And then immediately after, he says, we're like nursing mothers. And what he's saying is this. My wife, my, my daughter. Don't you remember we were on the same level as you? Don't you remember? You know our hearts. Like how a mother comes down to the level of their child. Like how a mother acts like a child as they care for them. How they come down gently on their level, playing with them. So we were right there next to you. We loved you and cared for you so much that we not only shared the message of the good news, but we shared our very lives as well. Paul is saying we were gentle, we were vulnerable. You saw right through us. Our lives were transparent among you. You know our hearts because we gave them to you in love. Now, if that isn't an image of how to respond to an allegation of impure motive, then I don't know what is. Love transparently, love vulnerably. Share your very life with the people you're called to share the good news with. What about today? How often do we hear this accusation against the people that profess a faith in Jesus? Preachers and churches are simply greedy. They're gluttons for power and for praise, for self-importance. And they want to just receive power from, by abusing others. Now let me take a second to say this very clearly. The American church is filled with many stories that cover the headlines of pastors and leaders, people who bear the name of Jesus who have absolutely undeniably hurt people. Nothing more painful than the sexual abuse scandals in both the Catholic church and the Protestant church. And what they've done is to serve that some, this idea that somehow the gospel is untrustworthy. And these aren't just accusations. These are real convictions. And as the church, we need to acknowledge the hurt that's been caused. And Paul wasn't perfect, but he gives us a great example of how the church should be. Vulnerable, transparent, gentle. In fact, we should be Christ-like. Because if we're not, then the lie that the hope in Jesus is not trustworthy because those who bring it are not trustworthy, well, that's going to grab a foothold. It's going to continue to have a foothold. But for Paul and for the churches that continue to live in the transforming hope of the grace of Jesus, we'll be able to stand firm on that hope and say Jesus is trustworthy and he's at work in our lives. The third accusation that Paul faced was that he was a trickster. Continuing in verse 3. The accusation is that the church is just trying to coerce you into doing something that you don't like. And the idea here behind it is that they're just trying to be manipulative, power-hungry leaders. See it in verse 3. 
For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. But how does Paul respond? Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day to not be a burden among you. We worked night and day to not be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul worked hard. I think what's happening behind here is that Paul, who was a tent maker, actually worked nights as a tent maker. He preached the gospel during the day and spent his nights working as a tent maker so that he would never have to ask anything of this church. He knew that they were likely a poor church. He never asked anything of them that they couldn't give. And he says, you are witnesses against this accusation. You know how set apart and blameless and above reproach we acted among you. And he paints the picture again of a familial image. He says, I was concerned for you like a father for his own children. What an image. What an image of how Paul is one we should imitate because he imitates how our God is our Father. He's saying, I would make every sacrifice for you and everything that I asked you to do, everything I encouraged you to do, everything I urged you to do, it was because I wanted you to live lives in line with and lives that were worthy of God. My concern for you is like a father. So what about today? How often do we hear this accusation on a faith that professes Jesus? Karl Marx once famously said that religion is just the opium of the masses. And what's behind that quote is that this idea that religion is just a drug intended to control people. We hear that the church is trying to control lives, put you into a system of coercion. And it's true, there are many examples of Christians and leaders and preachers who coerce their congregations in their own benefits. Tell evangelists to convince a church to buy them an airplane. But the message that Paul preaches is the opposite of control. It's about freedom. It's the opposite of for his gain. He risked everything to share it. Don't be mistaken. The message Paul preached isn't a message he invented to control a congregation. Instead, he was a steward of what God had said. A message of grace, of love. And these are the three accusations that Paul faced. And don't miss it, they are lies. They are baseless. That's what Paul is responding to. He's saying these are baseless. And Paul can confidently say these attacks on him as the messenger as the source are unfounded. But this is hugely important. The hope they have in Jesus isn't trustworthy just because Paul is trustworthy. Don't miss this. Yes, Paul gives us an incredible example to follow. But his whole argument builds to this most incredible moment. He says, but you know, though I carried the message, I am not the source. The source is God Himself. Verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, 
but as it actually is, the Word of God, which is indeed at work in you. Paul is defending himself against accusations. And in so doing, he gives us a great example of how to carry the message of hope and live lives worthy of the gospel. But he says, make no mistake. When your hope in Jesus is challenged, remember that the source is Jesus. It's God himself. And Jesus is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. And he's at work in you. The Thessalonians knew this better than anybody. We just saw this at the end of chapter 1. We knew that the Spirit had come in power and had changed lives so that everybody in the area knew that God was doing something. They knew in their own church, in that body, the stories of how God was moving and changing them. That they went from worshiping idols to worshiping the living God. Lives were changing. The Holy Spirit has come in power and is changing lives. And Paul's life is an example of that. What better example? The man who was persecuting the church is now leading the charge and exemplifying suffering on behalf of Christ. He's saying, you are witnesses. God is at work in you. So no matter what, don't lose sight of the hope we have in Jesus. It's trustworthy. You can build your life upon it. Jesus is trustworthy and at work in you. So community church, there are forces at work that intend to challenge your hope in Jesus. There are outright lies that are placed against the trustworthiness of your faith. And when those lies emerge, will you remember that you are witnesses, that you have witnessed the reality that Jesus changes lives. There are countless stories in this room. There are countless stories in this room from among each one of us, of moments where God has worked, where God has shown himself faithful. I've had the privilege of hearing just a small chunk, but so many at the same time of those stories. Some of them, some testimonies for the very first time even this past week. What a gift that is. Don't forget those testimonies. Don't forget how God is at work, how Jesus is at work. Will you trust the source? But there's also another side to the story this morning. The very same accusations that are placed against Paul are ones that many pastors, church leaders, and those who bear the name of Jesus have so sadly been absolutely guilty of. We need to name that. I can't look at this text and not also look at the headlines every week that put... Jesus in the crosshairs because of the untrustworthiness of those who bear his name. We need to name that. And we need to recognize that for many in our city, many in Gloucester, that the untrustworthiness of those who proclaim Jesus has been horribly lost. And that for them, the trustworthiness of the gospel itself is at stake. This, this is a sad reality. It's a tough reality. But don't miss it. Because the story of the church has failings. It utterly has failings. Because it's made up of imperfect people. It is. Our church here, we are imperfect people. 
that the message we carry is not simply our own. It's not an error. It was not given to us with impure motives from God or trickery. It's good news because it's the good news of grace that Jesus came to this earth, that he died on your behalf, and he rose again from the dead forever, defeating the power of sin and death. It's his free gift. His grace covers sin. It's the only and greatest hope in our world. So most importantly, we need to hear this morning that the hope we have in Jesus is trustworthy. You can fact check it as you remember how Jesus has proven himself faithful in your own lives. But I also want to say this morning that we, like the church in Thessalonica, should hear Paul's example. And while recognizing our own brokenness, we should long to live lives worthy of God. Did you hear that? That was what Paul was encouraging and inviting them to do. Live lives worthy of God. We don't live lives worthy of his grace in order to earn it, but living lives that reflect well on the reality of his grace. So Paul, who is imitating Christ, gives us an example to imitate as we bear the name of Jesus into our world. So when the accusations of error in our hope are raised, will we seek to be like the trustworthy source? When the accusations of error are raised, will we seek to simply be a steward of God's word? That's what we're called to do. Open his word. His gospel stands for itself. We simply should seek to reflect his words as we bear his name. And everything we do and stand for as a church, as his people, should be based out of the trustworthy words of scripture. When the accusation of impure motives is raised, Seek to be gentle like a mother playing with her child on their level. Share your lives with your neighbors out of love. Don't hide your failings, but demonstrate how God accepts us in our brokenness. Demonstrate the grace of God by being a beacon of those who have so known grace that we live confidently in that identity as His sons and daughters. And when the accusation of trickery is raised, sacrifice for and serve your neighbors. Be ones who so embrace Jesus' lordship over your lives. And may the change that Jesus is doing in your heart be so evident to everyone around you that they say there's something different about them and I want to know what it is. And when we do this, those around us will see this hope in Jesus is trustworthy. He is giving direction to our lives. We truly have a trustworthy hope for our future that sculpts the present. We have a hope. His name is Jesus. Now, Thessalonian church is a church that is captured by the hope and found in relationship with Jesus. And despite the fact that there are these accusations placed against Paul, despite the fact that there's these accusations that would claim to, to push against the trustworthiness of the message themselves, Paul is saying they are unfounded. And even more so, he reminds them that they are witnesses to the power of Jesus. They know that these accusations were lies, and in so doing, Paul gave them a perfect example, a wonderful, not perfect, but a beautiful example, a beautiful picture of what it means to carry the name of Jesus into our world. So I pray for us community church this morning. Remember how God has been at work in your own life. Remember those stories. Share them with one another. Share those testimonies with one another. That's what encourages us and reminds us 
as challenges arise. May you remember and live lives worthy of the truth that Jesus is trustworthy and at work in you. And may you hold on to that hope that we have in Jesus. You join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come before You so thankful for who You are. We are so thankful for Your good news in our own lives. Your grace. God, we thank You for the ways in which You have shown Yourself to be abundantly gracious with us caring for us like a mother. Urging us and concern for us like a father. God, we so thank You for who You are. And Lord Jesus, we know and recognize that the, Your Gospel is good, good news. And Lord, we pray that any barrier, any obstacle to that reality would be removed, Lord Jesus. We know you're the one who heals and opens up the doors for your gospel to be received. But God, we pray that as we bear your name, as we go out into our cities and into our neighborhoods, Lord, I pray that you would give us the humility to recognize how in need of grace we are from you, Lord Jesus, each and every day. We recognize how much you have changed us and changed our hearts. So that as we go out into our cities, we would be humble. We would just be simply stewards of your word. We would love our neighbors vulnerably, Lord. And we'd be so above reproach, God, that your gospel would be shown for what it is. Absolutely good news in every way. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your example here in First in Thessalonians. We thank you for this church, which is still a beacon for us today, God. We praise you for your word. It is good and beautiful. We love you, Lord Jesus. We give you all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.